A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. To Neve, who's on the floor, to Zara King, who's in Cork. Thank you, Zara. A silent wave. That, that's that's as, oh, sorry, wow. that's as good as any. Really good for an audio product. I really love that. It remains an audio Hello and you are very welcome to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast from Virgin Media News. I am political correspondent Gavin Riley, joined in studio by news correspondent Richard Chambers. Richard, how are you? Hey, good. And remotely from the wilds of, is it technically West Cork uh, by our news correspondent Zara Kingsar, where are you? I'm in East Cork tonight, but I'm going to West Cork tomorrow. So Cork in general. Okay, right. It w- w- wouldn't be like you. Uh, to be spending some time. Well, no. it w- actually, it wouldn't be likely to spend any time in East Cork. Uh, generally, not your favoured end of Cork. Uh, Zara is literally off work for the day, but it's such a pro that she's decided to dial in for the podcast via Skype anyway. And we're thrilled that she's with us. Um, I met th- actually, I was going to say, I met a podcast listener last night in Dundrum and she just, I want to say, we. I said I give her a shout out. Um, she loves both of you, so... She knows who she is. I also met a podcast listener last night who wanted to basically pitch for your share if ever you leave the company. So oh. let's let's not oh. mention that. <laughs> we'll, we'll talk about that off air. Does she Actually, have a CV? Yeah, probably yeah. shouldn't probably shouldn't have brought it up in this live environment. But Thanks, there we are. Um, <laughs> you always must consider options in these moments. You know, in these moments of difficulty. It's always good to have a fallback. No, no one's irreplaceable, <laughs> even me. Um, we should talk about the uh, what is probably the main topic of the week, and actually one of the things that's probably worth talking about when we're discussing it is the fact that it hasn't been talked about more. And mm. that's the uh, the latest homelessness figures that were published last Friday uh, evening. Yes. Uh, showing that the number of people now living in emergency accommodation for the first time ever is above 12,000. Yep. And what's more remarkable, I think, than the fact that the numbers have gotten so high is the fact that the numbers got that high. They passed this historic threshold and that the world, Richard, just seemed to keep on turning. This is one of the phenomenons about now. So generally speaking, every month when they release the Uh, homeless accommodation figures. Uh, It comes on the last Friday of every month. They are generally released uh, at about two o'clock, half two, three o'clock in the afternoon. Now, if you were to release figures at a time to minimise the amount of commentary or news coverage of them, releasing them on a Friday evening of the last Friday of the month would be a pretty smart time to do it. Mm. Now, obviously, they denied this was some sort of a news dump, as it's known in the business, where you use another big event or a time when news coverage and the availability of journalists is at a low. Mm. Uh, but it does have a profound impact on how the story is covered every single time that it comes out, because there is no real room for discussion as to how things got this bad, uh, as to what's being done to actually address it. And really, any time, any type of parsing the data is limited as a result of the fact that you generally will not have the housing minister available for interview. He wasn't available last Friday. He sent in a comment on it. But you certainly, you certainly will not have the Taoiseach or the Taunashta available to yeah, take questions on it Yeah, which is an interesting point because you were covering this story uh, when the figures were published last Friday afternoon. And you said, OK, right, the housing minister, Daryl Bryan, isn't available. He's got a prior engagement. But we'll get a comment from his spokesperson anyway. And then you go looking for a comment from Leo Varadkar or Micheál Martin or their spokespersons. How do you get on? Yeah, uh, it was it was a blank, really. There was there was a push, really, to sort of say, well, this is the Department of Housing's remit. Uh, we don't really have anything on this. So there was a feeling that this generally is what happens, is that you don't see... I think there's an unspoken thing that I think that there is an element of, we hope that this goes away and by the, you know, the, 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 the political agenda will reset itself on Monday. 
And that's kind of what does happen. So you're kind of hoping that it just becomes normalised. Well, it just it becomes the background just noise just of doesn't your become, life. Yeah, because if this, if if say the figures were, and there's no reason why they're released on the last Friday of every month because they're the previous month's figures. This mm. is data which is not just been collected and just been parsed and just been put together into this so you're very on, basic so spreadsheet. So we're now on the cusp of going into June and we're getting the figures for April. Yes. And there's no need for it to take that long. No, there's no need for that. Uh, and the Dublin Regional Homeless Executive as well, which I want to talk about mm. in a little bit, they released their own set of data on the same day, the fr- last Friday every month. Yeah. Again, it just does not help the understanding of the situation because, and there is still a misunderstanding about what the homeless figures actually show. So over 12,259 people included in the homeless figures. This again is just people who are accessing emergency accommodation. Mm. But the way it is, is that, you know, you don't have the same range of papers coming out the day after the figures are released. It's only Saturday editions and all that sort of stuff. Uh, You won't have the same amount of TV and radio coverage that you would normally do, although we will always um, do it and give it really, really big big coverage. You won't have the same amount of availability of opposition spokespeople. Owen O'Brien seems to be very available though on Friday evenings, last Fridays of every month. Mm. Always willing to take the questions on it, as will all of the and groups but it just does diminish it and it just does not allow it the type of uh, you know the examination of what is actually happening there the social impacts of all this it just gets bet into the end of a weekend which is wrong which is wrong Uh, and that's because go on Zara sorry there is an element of sort of oh it's a monthly thing and so there's almost a sort of an effort on the part of the government to sort of say oh you know you know it happens every month it's no big deal it's not an event however we still see the numbers go up and up month after month I mean the fact that uh, the likes of the Taoiseach and the Taoiseach's office would suggest that this is sort of not on their on their desk is kind of outrageous no which, which is which I was actually going to put a question to you about that because I know that Richard isn't an enormous fan of the West Wing but you you and I Zara are so we'll, we'll know the phenomenon of take out the trash day of deliberately burying stories on a Friday afternoon because nobody yeah. reads the Saturday newspaper but there's another point of well if the Taoiseach and Thornishta and often the Minister are never available to give comment either is it almost a deliberate tactic so that when you're trying to do your, you know, both sides thing, if you're trying to do a good balanced TV piece and you want to speak to the political leaders as well as to the housing groups and everyone else, that it's almost like they're, you could argue if you were cynical enough that they're trying to deliberately make that harder to do? Yeah, you could. I mean, obviously we can't, uh, you know, we're not in their minds. We don't know what the decision process on that is. But I think the fact that, you know, so many times you pick up the phone or try and get that answer or try and get someone to come and, and speak on it is, and it's impossible, is really quite unacceptable. Um, You know, I think the bottom line is it's obviously an uncomfortable conversation for the government to have, but they need to accept the reality that every time these numbers come out and they're going up and up and up, it is a symptom of failure. And like for them to suggest otherwise. And I often think as well, when we do get an opportunity to speak to them, I don't know if both of you feel the same way, but um, often the conversation around sort of those families living in emergency accommodation, they're less entertained. You're deflected back to all of the different schemes to help to buy. You know, you're, you're sort of wheeled out a number of lines and mm. sentences that really uh, deflect from what's actually happening for the people who are finding themselves living in a hotel or even worse than that, living on the streets. I, I definitely felt that. I was at a, a press event with Dara O'Brien on Monday lunchtime and it was three days after the figures had come out, but it was his first time that he was available to talk to anybody. And we were asking him about, you know, yeah. what is your advice to the, mm. the 12,000 people living in emergency accommodation, let alone those in spare rooms or couches or sleeping in cars? And the answer inevitably pivoted back to commencement notices and social housing delivery and all of the things the government can point to that on which they are making progress. And I said, but that's scant consolation to the 12,000 people, isn't it, Minister? And he goes, oh, no, it, it absolutely is. But here's our commencement. Anyway. Here I'm going to talk about it. Here's anyway. all of our stuff. So it was, it was almost like mm-hmm. with the advantage of being three days removed, 
that he was like, well, it's okay that I can just talk about the stats and then kind of get away with it. Three, three, three points though on, on was, the April figures, yeah. which are just released there um, last Friday mm-hmm. of every month. There's three reasons why I think that they reserved, they deserved further examination than they were given. First of all is, that, of course, there was that coverage in the Dublin Inquirer and in other papers about the fact that the Department of Housing had figures which were pertinent to the discussion on the ending of the eviction ban. Mm. And yeah. for whatever reason, they were not released in as soon as they were prepared or they were ready. So the first reason why that's interesting, given the fact that this was the first month of figures from the emergency accommodation around the country uh, in which the ending of the eviction ban was clearly evident and it was clearly evident in this and again Mm. obviously the other reason is again is that we've hit a new record and this was not something that was a surprise but you had in the uh, data and in the data prepared by Dublin Region Homeless Executive which I actually find is almost the better data because you do have reasons for homelessness you have uh, Mm. the breakdown in terms of people coming through whether that's entering and leaving emergency accommodation as opposed to just being a simple spread of numbers So it's a bit more granular because sometimes that that headline figure it can mask how many people are going in or out of emergency accommodation in any given month whereas this is a better overview of the flow in and out. Yeah, and the amount of time people spend in emergency accommodation. So I have the figures here in front of me. And if you look at the length of time that people were actually spending in emergency accommodation, uh, 215 families at the end of April had been in emergency accommodation for more than 24 months. It's more than two years. 115. So uh, it's it's 18 to 24 months was 135 families. That's 11%. 16% were there for between a year and a year and a half. Uh, 6 to 12 12 months was 24%. So basically more than two thirds of the uh, of families who are in emergency accommodation have been there for six months or longer. Uh, which is a big problem because that is actually, and it is something which, again, it just gets lost when you have this Friday evening release of figures, mm. is that mm. the, the, the detail of how long it is actually for families coming through emergency accommodation, the amount of people who are coming out of emergency accommodation has dropped like a stone, okay? So this is the biggest thing, and this is what Dublin Region Homeless Executive actually said, and again, it was just completely lost in the whole coverage. They said that the big, single biggest driver of the increase of the number of people experiencing homelessness is the significant fall in the number of families who are actually exiting emergency accommodation. What does that mean in numeric terms? Back in 2020, the average family emergency accommodation exits 102. It's now down to 30. So it's less than a third of what it actually was. If you're having a backlog of families who cannot move into other, whether it be private rented accommodation or social housing from emergency accommodation, you are going to have a huge capacity problem in emergency accommodation. accommodation. And they have. So... This is another thing which is completely lost in it. I know Dara O'Brien briefly made reference to it in the uh, two or three paragraph statement that he did provide to us. But again, there's no sense of reaction. There's no getting into, well, what's the reason for why people are being backlogged in emergency accommodation? I just think the whole thing is just poor and the public's understanding of the housing crisis and the homeless crisis is absolutely Mm. hammered as a result of how it's all handled. I was just going to say there, just to remind people when we talk about emergency accommodation, what that actually looks like and what day-to-day life in emergency accommodation looks like. So when you talk about a family being in emergency accommodation, you're talking about a child going to school every morning from a hotel room where they live with their entire family. Sometimes there can be, you know, families up to four children living in a hotel room and that's where they have, you know, breakfast, lunch and dinner. That's where they do their homework and they go to and from class. And I've spoken to teachers who you know, try to work really hard to sort of give those kids another space, the schools that will stay open. And Gav, I know you can probably speak a bit more to this because your wife works in education, but there are schools that will 
stay open for an extra hour or two in the evening just to give the kids the playground to run around in to get the homework done before they go back to the hotel room. Just those small little things that try and make the kids' life a little bit easier. But when the numbers come out on a Friday evening, spare a thought for the child that lives in the hotel room and their entire universe revolves around that small box and that small space. And that's the truth. Imagine living there for two years and still not sure where you're going to be going next. Yeah, there, was, there was a really sobering anecdote given um, in Leinster House on Tuesday morning by the Labour Party who were talking to a public health nurse. I don't know whether she had done any public media or anything, but one of their senators said that they'd been speaking to a public health nurse from the north side of Dublin who was warning that because so many small children are now being raised in hotel rooms or other sorts of emergency accommodation where you can't fit a cot, you can't fit any kind of a crib, you can't fit a co-sleeper, that you're often going to have very small children sleeping in the sort of bedding that isn't appropriate for them and she was worried about the risk of cot yeah. death mm. because of children just not being able to sleep in a room that was big enough to be able to take care of their own kind of bespoke furniture. Uh, just on a related housing note, Sarah, you, you were covering the, the Blanchestown fire at the, the apartments in Falcon's View which is also a very pertinent reminder of yeah. just how easily people can find themselves needing emergency accommodation. Unbelievable situation and obviously that investigation is ongoing so it's not our place to speculate the cause of the fire and Dublin Fire Brigade will, will come to their own conclusions on that but just from a housing perspective Gav you know being out there the other day people sitting in the car parks sort of looking up at the building not knowing when they're going to get back in um, and how quickly that can happen now I think the understanding is that most of the damage to those apartments was done to the outside and the balcony areas so there is a hope that any repairs that need to be done will be quite rapid and that they will be quick but listen, anyone trying to get a builder or getting anyone in to do work at the moment will know that there's just not a, there's not a wealth of workmen or, or people available or, or work women to actually get jobs done. So even on that level, I think it will be very difficult to see how quickly this will be turned around. But in the meantime, Dublin West is obviously a densely populated area, no different to a lot of urban areas. There's no vacant homes or apartments that people can just move into. So they're being accommodated in hotels at the moment. Yeah, and um, the the amount of homes, even if you look at or the hotels, that's being used as emergency accommodation all the way through. Now it's being used for emergency accommodation to a lesser extent for people seeking asylum as well. Those hotel bed numbers are coming down rapidly as we head into the summer months. But just one more thing on the on the data that we do have, the RTB also released figures at the start of this week, which showed the number of notices of termination increased significantly. Uh, also in terms of a new of, record yeah, by the way exactly. even higher than the third quarter last year which was the, the ones that were really going to kick in around the evictions ban yeah and yeah. More, than, more than half of the family reasons for homelessness on the Dublin Region Homeless Executive figures was notice of termination i.e. Mm. the eviction notices uh, and again no real ability to, to parse this the fact is as well that a lot of the housing groups were saying that you know when the government ended the eviction ban they said oh we might have a temporary spike in homelessness but we'll have all of our supports and all of our mitigations will all be in place Yeah, right that was in April they're not all in place mm. and it is now effectively June so there are serious questions which aren't being asked not being answered certainly aren't being answered anyway in terms of the government response to homelessness uh, there is one other big story of the week, one which is getting a lot more airtime and column inches, I think, than homelessness in this country, which is, uh, in a way, a little mystifying, which is why maybe when we're covering it, we maybe ought to not cover the story so much as why the story is such a big deal. And that is the ongoing turmoil surrounding this morning, uh, which, of course, you can see every weekday morning here on Virgin Media 1 between 10 and half past 12. Um, Zara, I'm going to let you kick off on this because I think a lot of people, and myself included to a point, aren't quite sure other than just the drama of this just being, you know, a popular TV channel or a popular TV programme with hosts moving on, why the big deal? 
oh, Gav, there's so many reasons why this is quite a big deal. I mean, look, OK, you could start, first of all, we talked about this last week, the idea that this morning was such an institution and it's such a huge part of people's sort of viewing lives that uh, there's a sense of real squeaky clean family vibes on the show. I mean, if anyone who's probably watched Apple TV's The Morning Show will see uh, similar overlaps probably in the in the story that's unfolding um, at this morning in the UK now. But also it speaks to a conversation around um, perhaps privilege in the media. And we've talked about this before as well in a culture of sort of, um, you know, opportunity and favour in the media. And, and it now questions how things were handled within ITV and how, um, you know, promotions were dealt with and how people were uh, moved around within the organisation. There's a lot of questions about decision making at ITV daytime now that are sort of being brought up by this entire situation. I think there's a lot of questions about who knew what, when, and those are important. It does matter. It matters how um, major broadcasters like ITV, who are hugely influential in terms of public uh, viewing and public opinion, how they're operated and how they run and how they manage their staff. So um, there's no doubt this is hugely significant for that reason. Uh, Richard, do you think that we, do we, even as people who work for a large independent TV broadcaster, do we understand how much of a kind of a social responsibility there is or how much that we are kind of supposed to be held to account in those sorts of ways? Because I'm kind of listening to that in the abstract and I'm going, yeah, OK, OK, people have questions, but it's like it's a TV channel. Like it's not an, an arm of government. So should it be held to the same level of responsibility? Well, like if this was any other massive a corporation of the size of ITV, which is huge, and the amount of advertising money which goes into ITV, also huge. Uh, if it was any other major corporation, uh, you would expect a level of, um, you know, propriety in how they handle these matters. Mm. There were... It's clear from what ITV has now admitted and what has been admitted about the situation is that the original story was not uh, completely forthcoming. It was not exactly the most full and frank account of details in this. So I think that there is absolutely, there's going to be a, a lot of scrutiny about this. Obviously, there's a lot of advertisers which, which pump money into this morning as well. They'll want to, it, it to be clear that, you know, this sort of thing will not be tolerated anymore going forward. And... I think, yeah, again, it just it does also show that, you know, the media does and as is its responsibility will shine spotlights on things like whether it be the Me Too movement or any other uh, such allegations of impropriety uh, in other sectors of life, whether that be politics or corporate life or in Hollywood, for example. But it doesn't always have the best track record in terms of actually handling it when it is within house. There might also be another aspect to it, which is that because so much of what you see on TV is very polished and very happy, clappy and very joyful, and they're all presenting very happy families, that whenever there's anything that suggests that it isn't happy families underneath the service, that people just love the gossip of it. Uh, Eamon Holmes, who is uh, a former ITV This Morning colleague of Philip Schofield, has been speaking uh, on his new channel, GB News. He gave an interview to Dan Wooten, uh, which uh, raised a lot of eyebrows the other night. Let's have a little listen to what he said. He is the chief narcissist. He is a complete and uttered dyed-in-the-wool narcissist. Everything is about him. He was delivered from Philip's London home, mm. uh, usually on a Friday morning, uh, because Thursday was playtime uh, when he and Philip would hit the town. And, uh, and then he obviously stayed overnight and there are records to show that he was brought in the next day separately. In cars the, paid for by ITV? In cars paid for by ITV. Well, so the management would have had to have known about that? Uh, unless Philip paid the bill separately, but it would still have to go through the accounts office mm. that they would have seen that and known that. 
Now, can I just say something about that interview with Eamon Holmes and Dan Wooten? Because I've watched that twice. It came in two separate parts and I've watched it twice. And I'll tell you why, because there was so much in that that it required a double viewing just to sort of process a lot of the things that were said. Now, there'll be a lot of people who will say that Eamon Holmes um, has a, a gripe, an axe to grind because he himself was axed, as the tabloids would say, uh, from Richard loves that term, uh, from this morning. Himself and Ruth were, were cut off from uh, the Friday show. Um, Eamon Holmes would argue that um, the way he was treated by ITV and the way Philip Schofield has been treated were two completely different things that, um, you know, Eamon Holmes says that basically, um, you know, he had made a comment, something to do with 5G and asking questions or something. And he said that this was, he believed the reason why he was sort of on the naughty step and essentially um, kicked out the door. He said that in the second part of the interview last night. He also said, and I think it's very interesting and you can take what you will from it. I think we can all draw our own conclusions from this comment that his wife, Ruth Langsford, is still quite close and in regular contact with the young runner who worked on this morning, who's alleged to have had this affair uh, with Philip Schofield. So you would have to ask the question whether or not is there some sort of effort to support that young man in Eamon Holmes speaking out? I don't know, but I'm just saying it's very interesting that he's been so frank in the two, in the two nights of entries that he's given to Dan Wooten. You have to ask yourself, is there an agenda there or is he just sort of speaking truth now because he has nothing left to lose? Uh, which is a, a reasonable question, I suppose. Why now? And uh, and why not at any other point? For example, Eamon Holmes was seen giving uh, Philip Schofield an on-air hug when he came back after coming out uh, in 2020. And people wondered, well, if you already had issues with him from 2019, why did you at least go through the performance of being close to him in, in 2020? Mm. Is there a separate element, Richard, to all of this, of that people... And, and maybe this is an attitude that people in Ireland haven't quite managed to get to grips with. But that within Britain, because Phil and Holly had been on the couch for so long together, I think 14 years as a double act, mm. and he'd been there for 20, had they kind of risen to the status of Anton Deck, where they are almost no. that level, where they were kind of almost, doing, yeah. they were doing Dancing on Ice and they were such an established TV couple that aside from Schofield and what he may have done and what ITV may have known about it, that also people just love the gossip of the parallel story of the fallout between Phil and Holly. Yeah, there was, because that, that was kind of what almost was the the prelude to all of this. There was, you know... British UK uh, tabloids, column inches spilled over about some sort of Holly and Phil rift for a number of weeks before the actual story about uh, Phil meeting this runner when he was 15. And then once he turned 18, the affair began, which, of course, Philip Schofield has, Field has said was unwise, uh, but not illegal. But there is almost an element of um, they had they did have a great on air dynamism. It is going to be interesting to see what happens to Holly Willoughby and all of this as mm. well. And this is something which Eamon Holmes and others are now pointing to in that they feel that there was a bad culture uh, in the setup around this morning, uh, that there was generally a lot of people who were just not happy with how the whole thing was run by the pair of those two big personalities. Because you will always have big personalities driving these shows. Mm. Uh, but there was a feeling around this that there wasn't... Um, there is a feeling among some people that Holly Willoughby can't really stick over this position. I think her but position is, is that she wants is to come that, back next is week. Is that fair though? But I don't know. But well, what do I know about the situation? Well, what do you well, know about true, the situation? It's kind of the thing, isn't but it though? I, I wonder though, that, Zari, your perspective on this particular is, is the, the, the mm. female contributor, that I kind of wonder, okay, so people might, presu- might and, and maybe more, more will come out uh, at the time that we're recording this, by the way, there are calls for ITV executives to go before MPs in the House of Commons in front of parliamentary committees to take questions about what they knew about the culture in the show and whether there was a, a sort of a domineering personality exerted towards people. So we don't know what might come out. But at the time that we're recording this, nobody knows to what extent, if any, um, Holly Willoughby was involved or implicated in anything untoward. 
And so if there's now this all the speculation about whether Holly Willoughby can hang on to her job and her very, you know, important career in ITV, sort of seems like that they're expecting the woman to be the collateral damage for something she might not have anything to do with. Yeah, I mean, look, I think the truth of the matter is, as Richard said, we don't really know to the extent what or what Holly Willoughby did or didn't know. But I do think that it's very clear from what we've seen over the last two weeks or several weeks now at ITV this morning that there needs to be a full investigation and establish exactly. I mean, it's not going to just be people who are on screen, let's be honest. If there's a toxic culture, it's happening behind the scenes. It's happening within the production. So it's something that if Holly Willoughby was aware of that and was partaking in that, then that needs to be sort of found out. I think in the meantime, um, whether or not she should take the fallout for it. Look, I mean, they were friends. They went on holidays together. They were friends. They knew a lot about each other. I don't necessarily think it's it's a given that Holly Willoughby knew the extent of what was going on. But also, I think that it really, there needs to be due process. I don't know if Monday going back to work is the right is the right time frame. What do you think? Like, it seems a bit soon, doesn't it? It's, it's soon, but it's two weeks then at that point after Schofield left. And if you're not able to go back within two weeks, then when, when can you go back? Because no matter whenever she does, if ever she does, it's always going to be an event. But the longer you put it off, then the longer it seems like it could be this kind of insurmountable thing. Yeah, and the leaks are continuing. A lot of people now are coming out sort of saying, I mean, I have, you know, Holly Willoughby labelled user who fakes friendships and ignores team. Uh, Holly Willoughby brutally branded damaged goods by ex-ITV boss claiming more to come out. That's within the last hour as well. This is a feeding frenzy now at this point where that there will be, uh, there's a lot more to come out of about this story, I'd say, in terms of the roundness. It may not be specifically around the issue around that runner, but there seems to be a, a, a sort of a secondary conversation which is bubbling up to the fore now about how generally this show was run, how staff were treated on this show and how exactly uh, ITV management, if they did indeed care at all, how they addressed any concerns that would have been raised by runners, producers and researchers on that show. Welcome back to the group chat. Um, Zara, one item that you were uh, covering this week before you, you went on your holliers to East slash West Cork uh, was the whole question of voluntary contributions in schools and just how voluntary they are, which I suppose is, is a, a bit of an old chestnut, but which becomes all the more pertinent when so many households are struggling to make ends meet at the moment. You know, I think what we established from the Vincent Four report out yesterday is that there's nothing voluntary about voluntary contributions, but they have been around for, as one principal told me, uh, generations. So first of all, um, for people who don't know, voluntary contributions are paid for various different things, including maybe even keeping the lights on in schools. So it can vary from some schools will ask for 30 euro for the year. Others will ask for anything up to 550 was the maximum amount that uh, Vincent Paul found in their survey. Um, 87% of the 1,500 parents who contributed to that survey, though, said that they had made enormous sacrifices to pay that. And when I say enormous sacrifices, I'm talking about like taking food out of their mouth to pay the voluntary contribution to the school. We're talking about not... Um, you know, turning the heating on and sort of electricity. And I, I know we talk about this week after week on the podcast. I just think, though, if you're fortunate enough to have all those things like food and heating and maybe you don't know anybody who's struggling, I just think it's important to realise that it, it, that's a very real lived experience for an awful lot of people in this country now. It's coming out again in the, in the SVP report yesterday in terms of these voluntary contributions. What was particularly shocking from that report, although... I feel I've heard this anecdote over the years, but this idea that children will be singled out because their parent didn't pay the voluntary contribution, this idea that name will be put on a blackboard, that they wouldn't get their locker, that they wouldn't get the journal for the year from the school, that they will be 
singled out in some sort of way to actually almost embarrass the parent into paying the voluntary contribution uh, or to set up... So, sorry to interrupt, sorry. Is, is, is that something that the SVP report said actually happens, that they pointed to examples of yeah. this actually being the pushback if you don't pay? Yeah. I can remember that happening. Yeah, so the report had a number of quotes and anecdotes from different parents who contributed to it and one parent saying that they were just, you know, so upset because their child had come home from school and said, like, look, you've ha- you have to pay this because I'm not. they're not giving me my locker, they're not giving me my journal. And so the child was left in a really embarrassing situation. And even after it's paid, the child still has gone through that and experienced it. So, you know, across the board, um, it's very clear there's nothing voluntary. The reality, the schools will tell you, is that they're struggling with costs and rising costs in terms of heating and, and electricity and keeping the schools open. And as I mentioned earlier as well, schools are great in terms of supporting, as we mentioned earlier, children living in emergency accommodation, they'll stay open to allow them to have time in, in the playground or to do their extra homework. So there are a lot of schools that go the extra mile that you might not realise, but the extra mile costs money. And this is where your voluntary contributions are coming in. Um, but the truth of the matter is, this comes down to a gap in funding between the state and schools. Yeah. And you can talk about, say, for example, yesterday, parents who will receive the back-to-school allowance, which is an extra bit of money in your pocket to send the kids back to school, but it goes into one pocket and comes out of the other because then you've got to hand it back to the school in voluntary contributions. So ultimately, it almost seems like the back-to-school allowance is almost sort of a, what's the point when you've got to, you've got to pay it back again in voluntary contributions? So it's I don't know. It's it's just not working yeah. at the moment for a lot of these families. I was going to talk about the funding gap there, Richard. But just you just made the observation that you remember that happening. You remember uh, people I, being I singled out for not paying up. Yeah, basically because the way Zara explained it there, like this, this, you're, it's almost predicated. Like if you pay the voluntary contribution, then you get your notebook, the school notebook, or you'll get your locker and all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. That happens very regularly. That that's not a surprise to anybody. For going back well more than a decade since I was in school. That 100% has always been yeah. part of you know mm-hmm. the reasons why they or not the reasons of it, but how it is actually you know, enforced if you want to use that sort of a word yeah. in real time. So that is something which I don't think will, oh God, uh, my outrage has spilled over onto the desk. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But no, that is something I think fa- families, parents, students, people who've gone through, even teachers will absolutely recognise as being something that does happen a very regular amount of time in Irish secondary schools. I'm wondering what rock I was living under actually, that I wasn't aware of that. It's just not okay to do that to a child. It's just absolutely, it's just not okay to treat any child like that. And I mean, to, and then to do it under the guise of like, it's a voluntary setup, it's just not. Like you're, it's actually debt collecting a child in the classroom. It's outrageous. Uh, firstly, I'm actually wondering um, what what sort of grade of school could be asking for a voluntary contribution of 550 quid. I imagine that if it's, if the voluntary contribution is that high, are you talking about a fee paying school or a private school? In which case, would you not just roll no, into the fees? Um, Actually, on that point, I will say to you, so I was speaking to um, Craig Petrie is the principal of the East Glen Lock School and he was telling me yesterday their voluntary contribution is €470, Euro, which obviously is at the upper end of the scale. But he was saying because they would have um, less students, actually their costs, say for like renting buses and things to take kids off on sporting outings, their overheads would okay. be higher because they don't have the same you know, if you if you have a high number and you split the cost between a high number, it's a lower number. Do you know what I mean? Whereas sure. actually, if you've left kids in the school, actually the voluntary contribution has to be a little bit higher. Yeah. Okay. Um. There, that point about the funding gap, though, the, it does really just highlight that when we're having all these discussions about, and we'll get onto the budget round in a minute about tax cuts for average income workers or whatever the government's going to do in the budget, that if you've got schools that basically need voluntary contributions to keep the lights on or as we've seen in recent years schools that are looking at donations for toilet paper so that they can make sure the bathrooms are stocked like why are we talking about doing other stuff for 12 billion quid when 
schools don't have toilet paper. Mm. I mean, I actually found this. Mm. That, that's actually one of the things I asked myself last week. There was another one of those debates about it's time for uh, a, a big debate about neutrality in Ireland, all that sort of stuff. And, you know, how much we'd ha- or we should have to increase our defence spending mm. uh, if we were to, you know, align ourselves with the EU or NATO. Again, we're talking about the amount of services which are under funded, uh, whether that be public transport, schools, hospitals, uh, housing, duh, yeah. uh, massively yeah. underfunded. Um, why are we having all these, you know, nebulous conversations about all these aspirational things, which, you know, some of us don't even want uh, at a time when we are so lacking in so many areas? So on that note, then, what did you make of the uh, the rather nebulous row within the coalition about giving a grand back to the average full-time worker in this whole Spat. Is it a spat? Is it not a spat? Well, it is, isn't it? I mean, at, at the end of the day, it is a, at least a spat or at least something which is very contrived uh, that you have three junior ministers in a government will go out, pen an opinion piece for a newspaper with the approval of the party leader slash Taoiseach. Mm. Uh, it is very much setting out a stall. And I know you have been mentioning, Gavin, how many days exactly it is until the budget day. If you're watching this on Wednesday night, it's 132 days what, till the budget day. I mean, what who, is knows, the, who knows how many British prime ministers you could go through in 132 days? It's nonsense to be thinking about from, this From a Fine <laughs> perspective though, what exactly are they, what are they hoping to do with this? Uh, so I think this is not actually about the next, but firstly actually, the reason why this is not about the next budget is because if you remember back to last year's budget, um, if you were a standard... Um, full-time worker on the average full-time salary which is just under €50,000 a year and you were single and unmarried and even if you had no pension contributions or anything of the sort the budget gave you a tax cut of I think €813. So the idea that you would get €813 last year and then this year you're looking at a government that's got like £10 of a surplus the idea that you wouldn't get about €1,000 back in your pocket at the end of that it's just barmy. So like it's, it's almost like literally if the world kept turning and nobody did anything you'd probably get a grand back into your pocket next year for the average full-time wage. So it shouldn't be contentious. So A, what are Fianna Fáil doing taking such a public stand against a popular call for a thing that they are going to deliver in four months' time? Other than, well, B, it's not really about the budget. It is about the election around the corner because I think that when by the time we're getting around to, to potentially having Michael McGrath sitting in this studio again in, in 132 days' time, um, that we won't be thinking about the row that happened in the middle of May about parties setting out their stalls for what they wanted out of the budget. But you might think about it come the next election. Mm. So the next time that the country is going to the polls, whenever it might be, whether it's this autumn or the autumn afterwards or spring of 2025, if you're looking for a, a, something of a point of difference between Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, you might go back to remembering, well, whatever about the standard public services and people are entitled to take whatever view they like, but that if I want more money in my pocket, I'm thinking that's the party that's going to deliver it for me. And I reckon that actually that's more about what's going on rather than trying to pull rank ahead of the budget uh, in 132 days time. Mm. Uh, Zara, your thoughts on all but of this? If last year's budget was the cost of living budget, then what, like, what's going to define this year? I know you're saying there who, who can spend more sort of, but I think the main feedback that we've gotten from people certainly in the last couple of weeks is that the cost of living budget was great and it was welcome and everything, but the truth was they were sort of like one hit wonders. There wasn't enough consistency across the board in terms of supporting people through an ongoing crisis. Yeah, some of which is being unpicked this week, of course, but the cut in the excise duty been rolled back from from the day that this is released as an audio podcast. For sure, but I, I think this is this is the way this is the way that we often talk about budgets in this country, and obviously, with in in light of the cost of living crisis, that's how people understand the budget and how or whether or not it works. It's how it impacts the bottom line of the family. Mm. With sixty or however you know, sixteen billion euros is surplus surplus for next year, isn't it? It's ten billion euros this year. This is a huge pit pit of money that the government has to play around with. Michael McGraw will obviously be talking about, you know, setting up 
uh, effectively the, the, the mother of all rainy day funds. National but, piggy bank. Exactly. Yeah. There is a danger that this becomes how much are you going to do for me sort of thing uh, individually and how much money Fine Gael in particular, this is how they are looking to sort of, you know, paint themselves in the, in the mind of the public is we're looking after the workers of Ireland. We'll give you middle earners, middle Ireland money back uh, as opposed to fixing all of the things which are broken in the country. So it is an interesting dynamic. I think you're probably going to start to see, you are starting to see, I think, a few more rifts developing in the coalition. You are starting to see rows, which previously you didn't really hear a huge amount of, are starting to bubbling up there. If I mean, you mentioned that the next election could be could even be this year, could be next year. Mm. Sounds more likely to be next year uh, overall. Yeah. But you are starting to see points of difference and re-emerging between all three of the parties in a way that previously you would have had a lot of these rows would be in-house or they wouldn't come out at all. Now they're very publicly coming out there at this point in time. So I think that's probably something to keep an eye on over the next number yeah, of months. If the rows that are being somewhat engineered by party leadership, well, sorry, I won't say the row was engineered by party leadership, but if party leaders knew that their junior ministers were going to write a piece in the paper calling for certain stuff to be delivered in the budget, it's kind of hard not to see that as being strings pulled from, from one direction 100%. or another. Um, Zara, the census figures uh, were out yesterday. There's, there's more, of, there's loads of us knocking around now. Loads of us. I mean, I mean, we're buzzing. Like, it's huge. I mean, what is it, over 5 million now? 5.15 million. That's the highest population in the 26 counties since the famine days. Did you, I mean, I remember census, that my census remunerator was chasing me for that forum for ages just to get it back. I mean, it's been a huge... The census itself is still quite a cumbersome thing, isn't it, in terms of how it's done. It's still sort of... The process hasn't really changed that much in the last 20 years. I don't think it's changed that much in the last 2,000 years. I think we're still back in basically uh, mm. Joseph and Mary having to get the donkey to Bethlehem and try and figure out exactly how they're going to fill out all this stuff because it doesn't really feel like yeah. it's all that different. It's kind of mad that we're living in the 21st century world and it's all still done by by the paper stuff. Um, actually, this is a total unplanned tangent, but do you guys, either of you guys want to reveal what you put down in your time capsule? Do you remember the time capsule bit in the census last year? I think we talked about this last year, didn't we? Did we talk about it last year? Yeah, we, okay. we did, but I can't remember what I put down in it. Feels like a long way ago. <laughs> I put my time capsule. Okay. Uh, I'll refer back to season one of the group chat and see what we all put down on our, on our time capsule. I think we all said it very openly though, didn't we? We did say it, but I just don't remember what it was. Shows the need for time capsules if our memory is this fallible <laughs> after one one simple year of the group chat. Can't even remember uh, that much. Do you feel like, I'm sorry, this is an off-topic tangent, but do you guys feel like in this job, because you have to retain so much information on a specific story that sometimes your brain just erases things? Like I have the absolute most shocking memory in the history of the world. Can't remember a lot of like conversations and things like just... I don't, know if, I don't that. know if that's so much to do with our jobs just as the, the modern way of living now. Mm. Like I was even listening to a radio interview when I was on the drive out and I got distracted by something that I drove past and that sent me off then this little mental rabbit hole where I was driving along for a minute and a half and then I was like, oh, I totally tuned out of that interview that I was trying to listen to on the radio. Like, I don't think it's anything to do with our jobs so much as just the world has now Maybe. evolved in such a bombarding way that you can't retain anything at all. Too much. It's an overload of information. So yeah, some stuff is obviously going to get pushed out as more stuff enters. If you have stuck with us until the end of part three, thank you very much uh, for having the attention span to do it back in a moment. <laughs> a breaking story as we come to you for part four of the group chat, which is concerns an ice cream cone in Donegal. And our news correspondent, Richard Chambers, has the story. Richard, what can you tell us? Well, actually, it's worth, worth mentioning at the outset of this, Gavin, is that in the last two to three days, there have been multiple stories based around ice cream cones and uh, convenience shops. Uh, so the first one, which is the most recent one, which has just come across our desk, is that one of these novelty giant ice cream cones, which often sits on garage forecourts or uh, on the corners of corner shops across the country, and obviously very popular at this time of year, now that we have something of a mini heatwave striking much of the country. But this massive 
massive replica 99, as it's described in the examiner, uh, was stolen from outside the Circle K at Glencar in Letterkenny uh, during the current hot spell of weather. Uh, Gardaí scanned hundreds of CCTV images in a bid to, cr- to crack down the culprits. It has now been uh, replaced. Uh, it has been brought back to that oh, so shop. Returned. But okay. also, the, the kicker really on this is, bizarrely, there has been a number of similar robberies in recent months in and around Letterkenny. There seems to be these bandits who are travelling from store oh to store. God, this is like the, a spate of robberies. Like the, the Letterkenny plastic cone bandits. Like, h- how is this a thing? Like, what, what would you do with multiple plastic 99s? Like, are you setting up some sort of illicit 99 model showroom? Like, what, what are you doing? Just a good old-fashioned mischief, potentially, as well. But the, the more pressing one, the one which will actually affect more people this summer, is the fact that apparently <laughs> the flake, uh, the key component of the 99, uh, Ice cream sellers are complaining in Ireland and in Britain that it's become too crumbly, that uh, Mondelez is now the parent company of of Cadbury's. Mm. uh, And there seems to be a suspicion amongst ice cream sellers that Flake has become a little bit too crumbly, perhaps not as consistently. A bit flaky. Yeah, a bit flaky, a bit flakier than it was. And apparently they've just not been stuck in anymore uh, into the 99. That's not a 99 then. But like, no, they'll 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 use something else. Some people are, yeah, some people are suggesting using twirls because it's a lot more solid. Okay. But I don't know, but, no. the, but I mean, it's better. Not, not. <laughs> I sort of feel like it, it's a bit meta that it's a, a tad snowflakey. That if people are complaining that the flake is too flaky, like the hint is in the name. No, but like it just doesn't. It doesn't have the. It doesn't have the stability to actually work in the ice cream as a starting point. From this from the ice cream seller's perspective, this is literally the definition of ninety nine problems. Does the ice problems. cream not have a? Uh, is the direct quote Mr. Whippy? Mr. Whippy says no to flaky flakes. Yeah. That's the tabloid headline that we were just all born to read. Uh, it's amazing stuff. Uh, <laughs> the, the weather, and we're likely to be hearing more of this as well because the weather doesn't show any sign of uh, of cooling down. It's going to be pretty pretty baking for the next couple of days now, isn't it? Yeah, it's glorious. I mean, listen, we'll enjoy it while we can. This is sort of leaving search weather just ahead of the leaving search. But um, yeah, I mean, look, it's nice. It's my holiday weekend. It's nice to have a bit of good weather. I think people get out and enjoy it. It definitely makes people happier. I feel like everyone on Wednesdays has been in great form. Uh, I feel like it's the privilege of someone who's now nearly 20 years on for Leaving Cert that I kind of forgot it was Leaving Cert season. So, of course, it's Leaving Cert weather. I think, that the, the, I think it's a sign you've finally gotten over it and that you stop associating the June good weather with the exams. Yeah, I mean, this is st- it's still technically May. So, like, if it does stretch through to the start of Leaving Cert, that will be... That would be miraculous stuff and we all hope that that does happen, I suppose. Uh, but yeah, like 20, it's 25 degrees, 26 degrees in Clare, mm. apparently as of uh, Wednesday, which is, would say, unseasonably hot. I'd say even if that was, if we got that in June, July, you'd be delighted with that. Mm. But for like a, a hot day mm. for May, which traditionally isn't a particularly great month. I know it's nominally in, in sort of almost primary school circles, it's described as the start of summer. Yeah. Meteorologically, absolutely hell no, it isn't. Uh, and that's another row which people oh, will we'll get have, into. We'll, we'll have a special <laughs> group chat deep dive on the definition of the seasons at some other point. But, uh, yeah. It is, out there, although to be fair, like granted, let, let's enjoy it and go out there and be careful under the sun and make sure you're wearing your SPF or whatever. But it, it's not all sunshine. Well, I was going to say it's not all sunshine and roses. The, the, the unfortunate thing is that it is all sunshine in certain parts of the world because I did see yesterday that it is genuinely unseasonable in Siberia. In the bits of Siberia inside the Arctic Circle, they're still recording temperatures of up to 30 degrees, which even for this time of year, it just is not what you get inside the Arctic Circle in oh, Siberia. Gosh. So yeah. not not an optimal outcome uh, for the rest of the world. Uh, so if, if the AI doesn't kill us, uh, the the sun the sunshine will wasn't the plot of AI, of AI the film the Steven Spielberg Stanley Kubrick thing that you know AI eventually replaced us and it basically by virtue of the fact that it stopped humans it stopped global warming I don't, so there's the upside <laughs> I don't, I is don't the re- extinction of humanity I don't remember that being a movie 
But is is that what the the AI forefathers are basically contemplating this week? That like if if the climate change doesn't kill us, that the robots will. I think the Matrix. It was not half of the reason why the the, the machines took over the Matrix as well. Is that you're I ruining your planet? Like climate change. Yeah. But it was <laughs> climate well, change. Specifically, it's like you're ruining the planet. I think it was was the machines. Uh, fairly reasonable political statement. Yeah. yeah. So anyway, there you go. That's something to look forward uh, to. Zara, any concerns about AI being the death of us all, as was voiced by some some ringleaders in the AI field this week? Oh, you both know how I feel about AI. I just feel so overwhelmed by it. I haven't even logged in. I've never used ChatGPT, such as my. I'm just so. I can't. I. I just. I find AI honestly terrifying. It's a little bit, and I think actually it's actually now entering into live political row in government because it is AI-assisted image search as part of the facial recognition technology problem that um, is obviously a rift now between the Greens and Simon Harris Mm. slash Fine Gael. So it is. It's going to become more and more part of everyday conversations. Anything which which requires, you know, chatbots, customer service, AI is going to have a huge part in all of this. And now that you have some very senior people uh, there's a really good podcast, the Daily Podcast by the New York Times, had Jeff Hinton on, who's like the godfather of AI. And he's like, well, wish I didn't do all that. Um, so um, when you have people like very publicly saying whoops and trying to dissociate themselves from the technology that might destroy us all, it's probably time to probably uh, get a little bit panicked. I'm just trying to imagine that as the New York Times headline, <laughs> that if they'd use that as the page one splash and it's just whoops. <laughs> My bad. Like Dewey defeats Truman level of just yeah. whoops. Um, will you be trying to use <laughs> AI next year in your fancy mini league? Because I know you came desperately close to retaining your crown. I know, the yeah. League this week, didn't you? Uh, second is, is right after first. So I'll take, I'll take second <laughs> in the Virgin Media League this year. Uh, but it was, it was like, because th- there's often cycles to these things and it's very difficult to pull together a couple of like good seasons consecutively. Mm. So the, the idea that you won the mini league last year and still were like within a couple of substitutions of winning this year, like it's a, it's a very marginal thing over the course of a whole season, isn't it? Yeah, through my summer now, Gav. I'm, I'm going to be sore about it until next season. Only 75 days to go. <laughs> Don't even get him started about the choice of the Gaelic grounds for the Munster Hurling final. That's a whole, whole other chat. We might, actually, we're going to keep no, it up for next week. Please week's don't podcast. talk, yeah. Uh, before we, we forget to do it, uh, next week, so obviously, if you've been watching us on Virgin Media 2 uh, on Wednesday nights at 11 o'clock, first of all, thank you for doing that. It's been great to have you along with us. Uh, but secondly, just to remind you that from next week, we are going to be moving house a little bit because we need to make space on Virgin Media 2 for a few new island it, it's back it's that time of year buckle up everyone it's coming uh, so to make space for Love Island we are going to be moving our way over to Virgin Media 1 on Wednesday nights for the month of June so you'll catch us on Wednesday nights at 11 o'clock but on Virgin Media 1 uh, instead of 2 we're going to be vacating the villa for some other people to uh, wander around in the meantime uh, otherwise well, that is come join us again at the villa. they can watch the villa and then come join us you, you, you get all sorts. Who, who wouldn't want that sort of combo? You get those lovely tanned people and then you get this pale, slightly sunburned face. Um, that is all the time that we've got in this week's group chat. A big thank you to everyone in the production gallery, to Rory, to Maxine, to Ross, to Tommy and Clodagh on socials, uh, to everyone in the gallery team today, to Neve who's on the floor, to Zara King, who's in Cork. Thank you, Zara. A silent wave. That, that's that's as, that's as, wow. that's as good as any. Really good for an audio product. I really love that. It remains an audio podcast. To Richard Chambers. I'm so cringe about that wave. I can't believe that actually happened. To Richard Chambers, the studio. Thank you, Richard. Thanks, Gab. Uh, to you for watching. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. Ah, good stuff. <laughs>